Hey guys, my name is Mike Stenhouse and I am the host of the Inside Property Investing Podcast. I recently had the pleasure of interviewing Michael Primrose for our own podcast and he has been kind enough to let me share it with the commercial property finance audience as well. Obviously, Michael needs no introduction to you guys, so all that's left to say is I hope you enjoy the show. Michael, I am delighted to have you on the show. It's nice to have someone with as deep an understanding of finance as you because it is an area of property investing that so many of us struggle with, get stuck with, come up against hurdles and obstacles with, and hopefully you can help us clear through some of that clutter and set us on the right path towards property finance success. But first of all, welcome to the show and thanks for taking the time to be with us. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be on the show. So you are running a successful mortgage brokerage finance company. I don't know what you refer to as. Is it brokerage? Is that the correct term? Uh, yeah, it's a commercial finance brokerage. Okay. Um, and obviously, that's been going a relatively short space of time, I suppose, but you've been in this industry for a while. I'd love to just go back in time a little bit and you know figure out what your background looked like. What, what have you been up to to get you to this stage in life? Yes, I mean, it, it started when I left school. I did my A-levels. Um, I didn't have a clue what I wanted to do. Uh, I'd actually I'd booked a university place uh, to go and do uh, police crime uh, crime scene investigation uh, at London. Um, and it was August. I was literally all packed up, ready to go. All the funding was in place. And I got an email from a, an ex-teacher. Uh, and she said, oh, I've, I've just come across this apprenticeship uh, in sort of for a, a solicitor firm just up the road from you. Are, are you interested in going out with a chat? And I thought, well, yeah, why not? Let's let's go and see what it's all about. So went along, got the job, um, decided to, to scrap uni. Um, thought, you know what, actually, this seems like a better route. Uh, so went in as an apprentice. I actually started off in uh, civil litigation. Uh, but as a child of, of divorce, I was I was dealing with a lot of divorces. And at, at the age of 18, it's, uh, yeah, I, I wasn't probably uh, the right age to be dealing with that sort of okay. stuff. So um, it, it hit me pretty hard. So I actually moved over into conveyancing. Uh, and that was my first first taste of property. Probably I was, I was 19 at the time, I think. Um, so did that for about a year. After a year, I'd, I'd sort of been in it. I'd been running my own cases, that sort of thing. Uh, and then got asked to actually run a little office. Uh, so they'd, they'd had someone retire, didn't really want to bring anyone else in. So they said, look, can you can you sort of go and base yourself over here, run your cases out of here? So you've got your own secretary, your receptionist, whatever. Um, so you ended up doing that for another year. Uh, got to the end of that year. And the, the problem with conveyancing, it's very... It is very mundane. It's the same thing again and again and again and again. Um, it's literally a process. And that's why so many of these call center conveyancing firms are coming up now because it's literally every bit of the process is the same. And the only time you really have to think outside of the box, you, you don't have to think that far outside of it. Um, so, yeah, I'd, I'd gotten to the end of the year. I thought, this just isn't for me. Uh, so at the age of 21, I was like, what on earth do I go and do? Uh, so I then became an estate agent for my sins. Uh, lasted nine months as an estate agent. Uh, before, before again, I just thought, this just is not for me. Okay. Uh, then went back into conveyancing, weirdly enough, for one of these call center firms. Uh, and again, the mundane thing came back. And that's when I landed in commercial finance. Um so what had happened is I actually got made redundant from the conveyancing firm uh, that I'd, I'd been working at when I was about 22. Uh, and my wife, uh, the, well, she was my fiance at the time, was, was pregnant. Uh, and she was probably six months along, I would say. Uh, so I went home, had to explain to her that I'd been made redundant, uh, which, as you can imagine, wasn't ideal. Uh, so ended up taking pr pretty much the first job I could find, uh, which was working as a BDM for a finance company. So they, at that point, only really did business finance. They'd done a couple of property loans. Uh, but so, so I went in and I saw, I was, I was dealing with invoice factoring, invoice discounting, business loans, that sort of thing. Um, got a, again, a couple of months in and thought, you know what, there's, there's a big market out there for, for property finance. Uh, and I'd sort of sat with the MD at the time and he'd sort of said, well, th these are some of the things we've done before. And they'd done a couple of development loans. Um, so we got into it and we, we sort of decided that actually we, we try and build a property up. So I was there for about 18 months uh, and basically in that time built up sort of quite a, 
a well-respected, uh, well-looked-at department. Um, ended up bringing about five members of staff on, and we were we were helping some of the big players uh, that a lot of people will see on Facebook and that sort of thing. So, got to the end of the eighteen months and thought, you know what, actually, this could be something I could go and do for myself. So, I think at the time I was twenty—I must have been twenty-four at that point—and uh, thought, you know what, I can I can do this for myself. I was a naive twenty-four-year-old. <laughs> thought, yeah, I'll go and, go and do this for myself. Uh, got into business with the first people that I found, uh, a couple of developers. Literally, we jumped into business together, having no experience of each other whatsoever. Uh, so that was when TPE Finance, who many people will, will have first sort of seen me as, I guess, um, sort of when I really started taking and embracing social media. Um, got nine months into that. Again, a very, very short period of time. These, um, But yeah, got nine months in. And, and unfortunately, we because we didn't have experience of each other, uh, we, we got to the point where it was just, it, it just wasn't working out. So that's when I left, set up the property finance guy uh, with what I think is quite a quite a big amount of experience behind me. I'd raised a lot of money uh, for developers at that point. Um, so I sort of thought, well, look, I'm going to go by myself. I had a couple of uh, clients that I was working with locally uh, who I was doing quite big deals for, uh, and that sort of set me up financially to, to sort of go and work for myself. Uh, so, yeah, and then four months later, that brings us to today, really. And uh Fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's been a whirlwind. I mean, it, it, just in the last three months, I've raised near on twenty million pounds uh, for developers and investors. So, it's, it, as you see, it's been a pretty, pretty whirlwind journey so far. Yeah, it's a big number. And you've, you've, I mean, whilst that hasn't been your primary focus, you have dabbled in sort of investing yourself as well, right? You've got hands-on experience of your own portfolio. Uh, yeah, which which came off the back of when I left TPE. Uh, one of the directors made a comment uh, saying, "Well, why?" Why would a broker? Sorry, why would someone go to a broker who hasn't invested in property? Uh, he, he didn't quite say it as nicely as that, but um, I, uh, I sort of thought, you know what, actually, uh, and, and put a bit of a middle finger up to that, and went and bought six houses, <laughs> and thought, well, uh, yeah, why not? Uh, I thought, well, there you go. Now you've got a broker that's invested in property. So uh, we actually today on the day of recording uh, have, have just completed uh, on two HMOs uh, with a JV partner. Uh, so yeah, that's that's two of the six, uh, which yeah, are now going through. So Amazing. Uh, it, congratulations. It's, it's, thank you very much. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's quite a nice mix. It's uh, a rent to rent SA flat in Cambridge. Uh, in, in fact, actually, again, by the time people listen to this, that'll probably be two flats. Um, there's two flips and three HMOs. So actually, we're, we're probably getting close to, to seven units now uh, in various different guises really um so yeah it's been it's been an incredible three months really great stuff well the first question you can answer for me is one that you are probably uniquely qualified to do with your experience as an estate agent a conveyancer and uh a mortgage broker right because as far as i'm concerned those three people always blame the other two for delays in our purchases <laughs> getting across the line so who's actually to blame who causes all of the problems so I actually think all three are to blame in their own little way. Um, so, I mean, solicitors have always got far too much work on. Uh, it, it just is just always the case. Um, I mean, the, the two HMOs that we completed on today, seven months in conveyancing. And the problem is they, they just had such a humongous workload. Yeah. Um, and then the other problem is estate agents constantly putting pressure on. Uh, every day, pressure, pressure, pressure. And as a conveyancer, to have an estate agent on the phone every single day, it's half an hour out of your day, gone straight away on one phone call, trying to explain to them where you're up to, what's going on. Um, and I, I remember where well, I used to be my MD when I was doing the conveyancing. He, he always said, always keep the estate agents on site. He said, no matter how long out of your day it takes, always keep them on site because they're your biggest source of business um, because the number of referrals that they make over. But when you're doing that, it takes so much time out of the day. Um, And uh, yeah, I mean, brokers are always involved in delays as well to a certain degree because they're they're in it at the first place. They've got to try and push things to legals as quickly as possible. The problem is as well, as soon as it hits legals, a broker sort of switches off um, because you've got the estate agent and the solicitor involved. So I think, yeah, it really is 
a little bit of everyone really but when you put them together it just just generates huge delays sometimes well i don't think you overly offended any one particular industry there so very very diplomatic <laughs> of you to, i'll uh, i'll accept yeah, I've that got to be diplomatic there and <laughs> <laughs> um, one thing i guess you know what we we want to get into today is there was a, a statistic that you shared recently i think you said there are something like and correct me if i'm wrong here but 66 thousand registered mortgage brokers in the uk is that correct uh, that's correct yeah so that's just regulated brokers as well so they i mean there's probably actually now closer to between eighty thousand and a hundred thousand brokers in the uk at the minute um it, it's just a staggering number of yeah just just crazy Okay, so I mean that 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 does seem like a bonkers number, but something that we get asked time and time again is, can you recommend a good broker? We have worked with X, Y, or Z, and they have let us down, or you know, the, like there always seems to be more that cause problems than do good, and there are a couple that we recommend and continue to recommend, but they have limited capacity typically, right? And it's almost a, a bit of a double-edged sword. You recommend too much business to them and they get too busy and then their services start to slip. Same with any industry really, but just for some reason, more finding a decent mortgage broker, commercial finance broker seems to be a struggle. So, I mean, with 66,000 of them out there, why is it so difficult? I think a lot of it comes down to, and especially on the unregulated side, is it is unregulated. So anyone can set up a mortgage brokerage um, and, and go into commercial finance. I mean, all they have to do is get their indemnity insurance and their data protection number, and there, the, there you go. They're, they're away. Um, so I think it, it can be really hard to sort of whittle away and, and actually find out who's good. Um, but, I mean, a couple of pointers for, for anyone that is looking for one. I mean, I'd always look for proven case studies. Um, now, I'm, I'm not very good at this. Something I've got to get better at. Uh, is actually posting case studies. Now, to date, I've been quite lucky because other people have posted them on my behalf. Um, so if I've completed a deal with a client, they normally tag me in on their sort of celebratory posts. Um, but I, I need to get better at, at, at posting that sort of stuff. That's always a big one because you know that they're actually out there raising finance for people. The, the second big thing as well is if they've got case studies, if they're maybe a few months old, I'd speak to the people that they raised the finance for. Because a big thing is, did they actually get them out of the finance as well? So if someone's doing a flip or if they're doing something, maybe they're doing something where they want to keep it to rent at the end. It's always good to know if they put them on a bridging loan uh, to begin with, for example, did they actually get them off of that finance in the right way as well? Or if mm -hmm. they just sort of abandoned them on a bridging loan and left them? Sure. So that that would be one of the big things that I'd look at first. Uh, the other one is obviously that the broker's investing in property themselves. Um Again, uh, by the time people come to listen to this, you will have seen, no doubt, that I've started posting uh, a bit on Facebook about the deals that we're doing at the minute. Uh, the, the other big one as well, and this, this was a big point that I made at a talk recently, if you're asking for recommendations and someone's tagging themselves in, so as a broker, they're actually recommending themselves, I'd be a bit worried about that. Now, it's not to say that the brokers that are tagging themselves in are bad brokers, but it always just puts me off a little bit because you think if, if someone else is tagging them in, normally that's someone that's used them. Yeah. It's, it's again, coming back to this case study side of things. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd just be wary of that as well. Um, but it's always good to make sure that the brokers that you're going to have got diverse panels as well. Uh, because a lot of, especially a lot of the commercial ones that are setting up overnight, they're just putting deals out to the, to the lenders that give them good commissions. Mm -hmm. So to give you an idea uh, on bridging finance, I've got bridging lenders that give me commission of 1%. I've got some that give me commission of two and a half percent. So there really is a massive, massive difference. Um, now, actually, funnily enough, the one that gives me two and a half is probably one of the cheapest. Um, but sounds like a one win. You need to, but you, you uh, don't well, yeah. know that. <laughs> no, and it's it's always good to try and find brokers who are using lots of different lenders. Um, and yeah, that's a big thing for me is I, I try and have as a bigger panel as I can at the time. That, that's kind of, I, I suppose, it's, I mean, so for, for your Joe Bloggs property investor on the street, looking at interviewing, finding a new broker, right? They come to you and, I mean, what is the question? What is it literally how many how many lenders are you on the panel for? Is, is it as simple as that? that? That number itself could kind of, you know, it, it might still be meaningless if you don't know what the right number is. 
yeah, I mean, it, it could be could be very different. I mean, as well as asking that, I mean, th- there are probably 200 plus uh, just on the commercial side. On on the residential side, you're probably looking three, four, five hundred plus lenders. Um, you're talking about here. Yes, yeah, this is just lenders. Yeah, I mean, there are hundreds of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, especially when you've got people like the post office doing mortgages now as well. Um, so literally anyone can lend money out and, and sort of call themselves a lender. Uh, so I, I would actually ask the broker how many lenders they've used. So how many deals have they completed and how many lenders have they used? Because uh, that's always a good one. And also I'd look on social media and things because I, I know especially when I go to the trade shows and things, I'll always put a little Facebook post on. Oh, I'm at X, Y, Z. They're they're doing X, Y, and Z now. Always yep. good to sort of add a few more to the panel. Uh, and if they're going to those sort of shows, normally you know they've got a pretty big panel. Uh, so yeah, it's just little things like that, just making sure that that they're getting the right things. I mean, for for a rule of thumb on bridging, for example, the arrangement fee shouldn't really be more than two percent. There okay. really shouldn't be an exit fee more than one percent, and your interest rate actually should be sub one percent unless there's sort of bad credit or the property isn't a particularly good property uh that that should give you a rule of thumb sort of moving forward anything above one percent a month i'd be a little bit wary of okay good to know um and on the the subject of you know having that that sort of diverse panel of lenders i suppose you could have uh, i guess this is a question you could have multiple brokers that are able to send deals across to any particular lender right will the lenders have favorable brokers that they prefer to work with as well will they give different terms to different brokers depending on how long they've worked together how many deals they pass across or is you know a shawbrook's deal shawbrook's deal regardless of who you get to it from so some will have preferential rates um so for example shawbrook have something called uh preferential partners i think they call it now um and they get they, they normally shouldn't get reduction in the interest cost, but they might find that they get an uplifted commission, for example. So it, it's just about I mean, if a if a broker has got a really really good relationship with a lender, it normally doesn't mean they're going to get better terms, but it means there's maybe a a, a better chance of negotiation. Uh, so I, I work with quite a few family offices that I put quite a lot of business through to, uh, and I mean they're absolutely perfect to negotiate with uh, because you can literally get everything down and you can sort of whittle away at it as much as you can but if, if a broker went to them for the first time then then possibly they turn around and say, well actually let's let's just get a couple done first let's have a look at it much as they would if a developer went direct uh, yeah I think I, I suppose the short answer is realistically a lender should give the same terms to two different brokers uh, but I suppose that brings me on to another point actually in that developers and investors shouldn't really be using multiple brokers uh, unless they know that the brokers are going to different lenders because if the same lender gets the same deal from two different brokers it normally puts them off the deal okay because they they like to build relationships and if they think for whatever reason that they're not getting that relationship if they think that you're touting it out to 200 different lenders it, it just doesn't sort of tickle their interest really yeah i get you yeah yeah okay that makes sense and i mean with the the, the brokerage side of things as well uh does the size of the firm make a difference in your opinion now you're a relatively small firm in the grand scheme of things and at the other end you've probably got someone like london and country now they're probably not dealing with commercial stuff at all or maybe you know very infrequently if they are but you will get brokerages who are pretty big entities in their own right my personal preference has always been to work with someone that i can build a relationship with but again then you get the problems of capacity and if they're on holiday and you need something pushing through urgently so i mean i guess you're going to advocate the smaller firm as well i presume given that's the sort of situation that you're in but do you think it makes a huge difference the size of the brokerage you deal with i I don't think it makes any difference as to what you're going to get, you, you're going to get the same thing. But I think you're definitely on the right track with with capacity. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm definitely feeling that at the minute uh, with, with everything that's going on. So, I mean, I for just myself, I've got four admin staff that are coming on board. So it's, uh, yeah, I mean, that's 
yeah, it's crazy, really. If if I bring another broker on and have to give them four admin staff, then all of a sudden you you're talking like ten of us, uh, and we're, we're starting maybe to get into the realms of, of being bigger. Um, I think that that's the only point really is it is capacity uh, because you need someone who can spend the time working with you. Because what I find is when capacity gets smaller, you tend to either have delays or you tend to find that the deals are going to the wrong lenders. Mm-hmm. So if for example, and this hasn't happened to me, but it, it could well happen. Uh, if I had a deal that was coming in, and for example, I had absolutely no time, but I knew there was three lenders that, that maybe would jump on it straight away, uh, then I might just send it to those three lenders. Whereas if I've got a bit more time, I might research the options in a bit more detail, which is what I do now. So it, I think as capacity comes down, you, you might struggle to get uh, quite the, the best deal on the table maybe. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, I'm a massive advocate of of small firms. Anyway, I mean, on the on the commercial sector, there aren't many big firms. Uh, I'd say the biggest are probably only sort of twenty or thirty staff, maybe. Um, so it, it always tends to be a sort of, sort of smaller uh, workforce because there's not quite as much coming in as there would be if you were a, a residential broker, for example. Yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, what about uh, brokers' fees as well? Because obviously you, you mentioned there that you're getting an incentive from the the lenders. Uh, yeah. And in a lot of cases, I guess you'll be charging your, your client as well, the borrower, uh, a fee for... I mean, I, I, I've got, just to be clear, I've got no issue with, with brokers making good money for getting the right money to us. It's probably one of the most valuable pieces of our team making sure that we've got the funding in place when we need it but i guess there are going to be some constraints within which a fee seems reasonable uh you know you go too cheap and you're probably not going to get the service you need you go too expensive and there's only so much value that you will get from someone with you know that level of experience it feels like they can justify those like ridiculously high fees so i mean what what sort of fees should people be expecting to pay for different types of deals so on the commercial side, uh, pretty much every broker will make 1% out of a deal. So this is on bridging, development, uh, commercial buy-to-lets, that sort of thing. They'll, they'll always pretty much make 1% as a okay. commission. So you borrow 100 grand, your broker makes a grand, and that's from the lender rather than from what you're paying. That, that's, yeah, exactly. It's normally 50% of the arrangement fee. Okay. It's normally what comes up. Now, depending on the complexity of the deal, uh, and depending on the leverage that you're trying to take and how creative the broker's got to be, I, I'd expect to pay anywhere up to an additional one as a broker fee. So it, it just depends on – if it's a simple limited company buy-to-let, I think anything more than sort of 500 quid is a bit a bit steep. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it's a complex bridging loan, then I think 1% is about – what it should be. Uh, so I think it's it, it's about weighing up. And, and it, it comes back to a good point you made a second ago about uh, you don't mind paying expensive broker fees if they're saving you money. So, I mean, you're not going to mind paying a broker 1% if actually he's brought your interest rate down 3%. So it's it's all about understanding, yeah, like you said, just understanding that piece of the puzzle and making sure that you're getting the right people on board and the right finance. Yeah. Now, that's an interesting point as well. You know, you say about bringing the interest rates down 3%. That, to me, seems like a pretty wide range. And I guess, you know, naively, I kind of go in assuming it's going to be around about 1%, maybe slightly under 1% per month. So you're talking about annual rates. So, you know, 3% would be bringing it down from maybe 11 or 10% down to 7 or 8%. So can the swings be that large by getting the right lender in place for the right project? Oh, they can be massive. Uh, so, for example, if you just went, let, let's just take a vanilla buy to let, for example, uh, or van, a vanilla flip, sorry. So, on a vanilla bridging loan, you could go to Shawbrook at 75% loan to value and get 0.7% a month. You could go to someone like Roma, for example, at 75% loan to value and get 1% a month. So, it's the, the difference can be that much. I mean, I use Roma, but actually, to be fair, their rates are coming down at the minute anyway. Um, but there are definitely bridging lenders who, even on vanilla stuff, will be 1, 1.1% a month. Um, I mean, I would say the swing is anywhere from, yeah, I mean, you could probably get as low as 0. 0.6, 0. 0.65 on a vanilla deal, uh, all the way up to 1.5. Wow. 
So it, it really can be massive. And so, uh, some of and those I, higher I, rates will be reserved for people who maybe do have, you know, no previous experience, bad credit history, that sort of thing. And that might just be the cost of entry, right? But I mean, some of these products, they'll have pretty much the same eligibility criteria. It's just a case of your broker knowing where the best deals are. And, and that's exactly it. I'd say actually it falls more into bad brokering than it does necessarily because even even bad credit on bridging finance shouldn't be more than 1% a month because uh, taking Shawbrook, for example, they'll take questionable credit. Um, so they might take missed, missed payments. They might take uh, – you don't have to have a squeaky clean uh, credit rating. So, I mean, when I came out of the previous business, I mean, my credit rating did take a hit because uh, I had three months of the, the last three months of that business were, were pretty hard on me. Uh, and it did put a hit on my credit score uh, and I missed a couple of payments. So when I went for bridging finance for our flips, I mean, we got 0.85. Now, I mean, even that's sub 1%. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the reason we didn't go for Shawbrook was purely because we didn't really want to go with Shawbrook at that point. So uh, I actually tried out uh, its company called the Bridging Group. So we went with those guys purely because I was doing quite a lot of volume through the brokerage with them at the time. Uh, and it, it seemed like a good fit at the time, which to be fair, actually, it has, has been a really good fit. Uh, but even 0.85, bearing in mind I'd missed payments and my credit score had taken a hit. It's still sub one percent. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I mean, if I if I if I'd gone to a, a a broker that maybe didn't have sort of a decent panel, I, I could have easily been one point two five, which which would have made a huge huge difference to the project. Yeah, I, I mean, it's 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 often one of the biggest expenses and you know given that you know a percent either way can make a huge difference to that as well it can be an extra five grand on a small project one way or the other either you know extra profit or additional cost yeah it it could have a a massive massive impact um are there different so uh, you know talking about the swing here from from one lender to the next in terms of interest rates will different lenders have different rates depending on the type of project have shopbrook got a preference for hmos whilst lambay have got a preference for you know service accommodation and if you partner up the right lender with the right type of project you're going to get they're, they're going to get preferential rates in that case as well or is it a case of you know this lender's cheap so we'll pass everything through to them so most have sort of one one product that they really really like uh so for example let, let's take short because another example they really like hmos uh now that doesn't mean that the rate's going to be affected, uh, which which is not. I mean, their HMO products are probably one of the most expensive on the market mm-hmm. at the minute. But they're probably one of the most aggressive when it comes to the valuations. So they probably give some of the best valuations. Now, on another note, you may go to someone like Foundation Home Loans, who really like uh, SA at the minute for first-time SA landlords. But then you might go to someone like Cambridge and Counties, for example, who are probably twice as expensive on interest. Uh, but the difference is, is that foundation home loans are going off of just a normal bricks and mortar valuation where Cambridge and Counties may go off an EBITDA valuation. So they value the service accommodation as if it was a business. So that that's where it starts getting in. And it, it's understanding that from a broker's point of view as to which products the lenders really like. Now, they might be a bit more expensive, but if it's going to get you more money out or if the process is going to be easier or uh, if, if just in the long run it's going to be a better relationship, then, then sometimes you might take a half a percent hit on a buy-to-let just because it might get you a bit more money out yeah, or it might sure. just be easier. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's about understanding that as well. But, yeah, lenders definitely have uh, products that – they they want to push more aggressively interesting i don't want to go off on too much of a tangent on to what you mentioned there but just i mean we've spoken about hmo valuations a lot on the podcast but never really had a huge amount of detail on service accommodation so you mentioned there cambridge counties will look at the income and give an income-based valuation on it i guess they're going to need to see so taking it back a step i suppose on our uh, commercial valuations on HMOs typically are uh, lender will want to see tenancy agreements in place and that gives them some certainty that at least for the next 6 to 12 months we're going to have that rental income coming in obviously on service accommodation you don't get 6 month tenancy agreements it's you know 2 night stays here 3 night stays there so will they look for maybe 6 months trading history or is there what, what are they basing that valuation on because I guess it's not just you saying you're going to rent it out for that amount of money 
Yeah, so normally they want to see a year to two years of trading accounts. Okay. So they, they want to see that it's being operated in the right way, that it's being operated well. Uh, so they'll look at things like reviews and things. Uh, that that really is a thing. They'll go onto Booking.com and Airbnb and check reviews. Because uh, if, you, if you're getting absolutely uh, stung on these reviews, then chances are your occupancy level is going to go down. So they want to check that the reviews are good so that the occupancy level obviously is going to stay high. Uh, what they'll normally do, because with service accommodation, the, the default position for everyone is, is bricks and mortar. Yeah. Because realistically, if the lender ever has to repossess, it, 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 they're repossessing a flat. They're not That's repossessing what it's getting sold as, yeah. So it's, it's, it's not like the lender can turn around and sell it as something different. So that, that's the default position. Okay. Now, when you get into that sort of year, two years of trading account, that's when it starts looking more like a trading business. Uh, and, and then that's when they'll give a multiplier of the EBITDA. Uh, you can ask me what that stands for. Uh, but Earnings it's, before uh, income something, intro. blah, blah, blah. And I'll just sort of tail off there. Yeah, I'll let you put that bit in. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. So, um, okay, but yeah, no. So it's 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 basically your sort of pre-tax profit, right? Yeah. So they'll do a multiplier of that figure. Uh, now the only thing is, is the multiplier that they normally give to that figure actually doesn't normally give a higher valuation. So you don't actually get an increased valuation. Oh, you might get a, a very small one. Uh, but actually, the benefit of doing it is the affordability. Because if we go to the, coming back to the foundation home loan guys, when they're doing bricks and mortar, they're doing the affordability based off of a single let income. So if you've got a flat in central London, it's probably not going to get you out the percentage loan to value that you want. Oh. However, if you're going through like the Cambridge counties guys, they'll normally allow you to use the service accommodation income for the affordability. Uh, so what you might find is where actually something wasn't affordable on a single let basis in central London, for example, once you start bringing in BSA income and have been running it for a couple of years, you could potentially pull more money out and sort of bring it up to a higher loan to value. Interesting. So, I mean, for someone that was just getting started, then they'd maybe go with Foundation Home Loans, who you said, I think, were, you know, happy with first time SA investors on a bricks and mortar valuation on a you know three year fix or something. And then after that, when it comes to refinancing, they will have their track record that they can use to get a higher valuation. But I guess going straight into that higher valuation day one is probably quite unlikely. I, I think it's going to be unlikely. Yeah. And unless you're maybe you've been operating other service accommodation for a length of time mm -hmm. and maybe you could transition that experience over but even then uh, from the valuer's perspective it, it's difficult to transition that over yeah i get that uh, so i think yeah no normally you'd go off bricks and mortar first run it for a bit and then yeah try and try and sort of flip it over okay cool what about the like us sitting here as the the investors and the developers looking to make ourselves as appealing as possible to the different lenders are there things that we can be doing obviously credit score i suppose is the the big one that people are aware of and conscious of uh, and making sure that that is as high as possible is I imagine only a good thing um but aside from that are there any things that we can be doing to to improve our likelihood of getting better rates yeah i mean one thing i would say is the credit rating because Bridget, sort of focusing on the commercial side, because it's asset-based lending, uh, the credit score doesn't tend to come into it as much. So if I, I just sort of caveat that, if people are thinking of getting into the commercial side, don't think that the credit score is going to sort of stop you. Um, but I think to get yourself sort of lending ready, I think probably the first thing you need to come up with is your team that you sort of surround yourself with. Um, so I call it sort of your professional team. So you probably want to get yourself a good solicitor on board, uh, someone who's used to dealing with bridging loans, development loans. You don't just want a sort of bog standard conveyancer because it will be it will just go right over their heads because they're used to dealing with sort of virgin money, residential mortgages that sure. are just tick box and, and chuck it out, whereas this stuff is, is a lot more in depth. Uh, I'd get a good contractor on board uh, and a good project manager. Now, the reason for those two is because most – commercial lenders now will look at the team around you uh, sort of as, as part of your experience. So if you've never done a development before, but you've got the world's greatest contractor and project manager on board, 
you, you're probably going to be all right if we're getting finance. I mean, they don't have to necessarily be the world's best, but if they're reputable and they've done a number of projects. Uh, because realistically, at the end of the day, you're not the one who's going to be laying the bricks on yep. site. You're not the one who's going to be doing the refurb. So it's those guys that they sort of piggyback off of. Um, I'd always recommend that people get a mentor as well, uh, a, a good one. Uh, it's got to be a good one because it's someone who's okay. raised someone who's raised finance before. Uh, so the reason I say that is because I've worked with a lot of mentors before, guys who have raised finance. So when they've raised finance through lenders, it's, it's really good when a, a mentee can go and sort of put themselves forward for finance and say, well, actually, my mentor has just raised finance from you. Because from the lender's perspective, they're lending to someone who's learned from someone who they've lent to before. So in, in that sort of circle, uh, in theory, this, this new person that they're lending to should know what they're doing. So it, it can just sort of add to it. Obviously, you need to have the rest of the team in place as well. Uh, but I, yeah, apart from that, I think the other ones are your accountant, good broker, uh, good insurance broker as well. That's always a good one. Uh, and then if you're really looking to sort of take yourself to the next level, I think about getting a board of directors in place. So this just sets you apart from everyone else because if you can put yourself forward as having a board, it makes you sound bigger than you are, uh, but also the expertise on that board will help when going for finance. So I think once you've got those bits in place, that, that can make you really lendable. Uh, and obviously making sure company structures are all, all correct, uh, but obviously the accountant would do that. Uh, other than that, I think the only other thing that's going to make you lendable is finding a good deal. Uh, and I, I suppose there's not much we can do to sort of help with that bit. It's, it's about finding the right deal and, and yeah, stumbling across that, sometimes needle in a haystack. Uh, in order to get something that lenders really want to lend on. Okay, so it's it, it is I suppose I mean, obviously, like you say, having that team around you, um, your credit score is not massively important, which is interesting. But then ultimately, the deal needs to make sense as well. So if you start playing around with spreadsheets and trying to enhance facts and figures to make it look better they're, they're going to see through that pretty easily right i mean these guys due diligence is probably one of their core assets and it's how they defend themselves so they're you know you you, you stick in a few overinflated rental incomes or you know gdvs and it's not going to fly yeah I, that, that's it and i mean they're, they're going to see through everything straight i mean these guys are dealing with multiple uh, tens if not hundreds of developers a day uh so yeah, they kind of know pretty quickly if something's fudged. Uh, and one thing I would say is most development lenders now have their own quantity surveyors mm-hmm. in-house as well. Uh, so if you think you can fudge the build costs, uh, you, you're going to struggle, really okay. struggle. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's just make sure everything is absolutely spot on, which is where, where that team comes in really because they're, they're going to make sure that everything's all right. Yeah. And as a broker, how involved would you get in the details of a project helping someone prepare their case to put forwards? Are you, I guess, I mean, it's, it's difficult for you to advise on that, right? So are you kind of having to take the investor at their word or can you do anything to support them as well? So, I, I mean, I give everyone a bit of a template uh, to put the details into. Um but that doesn't sort of wheedle out if anything's incorrect. Uh, I mean, most of the time if someone sends me something, I can I can look just from experience now and sort of see and think, well, is that a bit, bit low? Uh, and it, it's sometimes a case of just digging into that in a little bit more detail uh, before the deals go over to the lenders because most of the time I can predict what a lender's going to ask on the deal anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll know, oh, we're actually going to ask this, this, and this. So I'll make sure that's answered up front as well. Uh, and if, if I think the cost of work so and maybe 10 grand more than they should be, I'll go back and say, look, can you just let me have a bit of a breakdown of this? I maybe wouldn't say, I think these are too high or I think they're too low. I might just go back and say, look, I just need to see a breakdown because the lender's going to ask for it. Yeah. Okay. And that, again, normally normally wheedles out if there's anything wrong because they'll send me a breakdown down and there might be 10 grand assigned for a kitchen. And you think, well, okay, that's maybe a bit toppy. Uh, uh, there's other bits in there that, yeah, might just... Just look like they could be changed. Okay. 
Now, I guess um, kind of final question for me, and then I'm curious to hear from you what I should have asked you, what you know, what I've I've not covered yet. But we, you know, we'll often meet a bridging a development finance company on site, and they'll say, oh, you know, if things go well, we're keen to work with you on future projects and they'll hand you a business card and say, you know, you can come through your broker or you can contact us directly. A lot of, I I don't know actually if it's, if it's exclusively smaller uh, bridging companies, but you know, we, we seem to get that relatively often from them. Any pros or cons to going directly to a bridging company versus going through a, a good broker? Uh, I'd say on the pros, you're going to maybe sometimes save some money by going direct because um, you wouldn't have the commission to a, to a broker. But that isn't always necessarily true because actually most of the time, most lenders that you go directly to will still pay the broker a commission. Yes, they've still got to then deal with the admin they're... side of things and all that stuff as well, right? So, Well, also, it's about keeping the brokers on side because brokers are their biggest source of business. Of course, now, if, yeah. I sent a, if I sent a deal to a lender did that deal and then they went direct to the client for the next deal, I probably wouldn't send that lender another deal because I think, well, you, you'll go behind my back and try and steal my client. Then. True. It, it would depend on the relationship with the client, I guess. But uh, I'd always say a good broker is worth bringing on board, even if you've gone direct to a lender. Uh, I'd still bring a broker on board to see if they can sort of match it or beat it. Uh, because in the 12 months since your last scheme, for example, the market may have changed. I mean, 12 months from now, uh, the market's going to be completely different uh, whether it be for better or worse who knows um, yeah. but it might be that a lender comes directly to you and maybe the first time we use them they were the cheapest in the market but in 12 months they might be the most expensive so I'd, I'd still use a broker to get a feel for what else is on the market uh, and I'd j- just be honest with them just say look I've gone directly to these guys uh, yeah it, it, most of the time it shouldn't really have a uh, uh, a negative effect with broker, or just use a different broker. Don't use the broker that you used the first time. Yeah, I mean, we've we've always uh, tended to stay with our broker. Just you know, for I guess it's sort of it's nice to know that there is someone kind of on your side uh, pushing things through as well. But yeah, it's it's. I suppose it kind of reminds me of like, uh, you know, your car insurance, you, you go with whoever's cheapest that year. Invariably, when you come to renew 12 months down the line, their prices have gone up. So it's worth looking about and you miss out on that if you are too heavily tied into to one specific lender, I guess. I mean, is it is it a case that if you get to, you know, serious volume with a lender, they will start to, you know, I, I guess kind of rubber stamp your applications, get them through a bit quicker. Can But I, I, that, that could be the case using a broker as well, right? If they get to know, like, and trust you, they will start to give you a bit of, um, not preferential treatment, but they'll just know that you know what you're doing and, uh, you know, it might help speed things along a bit. That's not going to be the case regardless of whether you use a broker or not, but it, 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 I guess it can be advantageous to to prove time and time again to a specific lender that you deliver. Yeah, definitely, and especially if lenders... Are consistently seeing that you're paying back on time as well. That's mm. that's probably, especially on de- bridging and development finance. That's probably the biggest thing because if they know they're going to get their money back quickly, and on time, uh, and without any hassle, then to them that's that's massive because they'd rather lend it to you, who they know is going to pay it back on time, than give it to another investor or developer that they run the risk may not pay back on time. Yeah, yeah, great point. Okay, so uh, yeah, like I said, then what what have I missed out? What should I have asked you? Is there anything else with regards to bridging and commercial finance that would would help our audience make that process a bit easier? Uh, without jumping into huge amounts of detail, I think we've probably covered off uh, most of the good things. I mean, we've we've been through what people need to do to get themselves ready. Uh, one thing I would probably just talk about is valuations. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to come back to an earlier earlier point, uh, and that's I think everybody. And that's everybody, no matter whether you're buying, remortgages, whatever it is, should always create a valuation pack uh, without without shadow of a doubt. Interesting. Okay. Valuation packs are fantastic. Uh, now, some people some people love them, some people hate them. I love them. I, I, I tend to vi- like. I, I I'm kind of more on the other side of the fence on that. So I'll, I'll tell you why in a minute. But I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah, so I mean, the reason I mean, every single one of my clients does it, even big national developers now do it. You're twisting their arm into making sure this is happening. And, and that's it. And it's it, it's important for a couple of reasons. So the first one is 
those packs are really helpful in the future when you're looking to raise private investment because you've created a pack which actually is a full overview of a project that you've done especially on remortgages it's a full overview of this is what we did this is what we spent this is what we now want it to be valued at and that's great if you're sending that to an investor because the investor's got something they can flick through normally it's high quality they flick through it they go actually you know what these guys know what they're doing Mm -hmm. Uh, and from the valuers perspective it's everything in one place uh, now, some of the feedback we get from valuers, so normally a valuation pack would have your build schedule in there. It might have floor plans before and after. It might have CGI. If you're looking to purchase and refurb, it might have CGIs of what it's going to look like when it's finished. Uh, it would just be jam-packed with information. Comparables are a big one as well. So for the value, you can just flick through this booklet and go, right, okay, this is what you spent on it. Right, okay, brilliant. That's what it used to look like. That's what it looks like now. Oh, great, there's photos. Oh, okay, there's some comparables here as well. Right, I'll look through those. Okay, they're not going to be swayed by those comparables, but they look at them and go, okay, actually, yeah, that's that's quite a good comparable. Or no, that's that's not one that I'd use. Uh, there's also rental comparables in there as well. So they'll look and go, okay, right, so rooms locally are renting for this. It, it saves them a little bit of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, I mean, like I said, literally every single one of my clients does on there. Okay. Uh, and, and we've we've seen, uh, maybe it's I'm taking on better quality clients, who knows. Uh, but I've seen a lot of valuations now coming back exactly where we want them. Superb. I mean, you can't argue with that. I guess, you know, I, we we used to use them uh, religiously. And then I kind of... Uh, <laughs> Probably partly just because I'm a lazy sod, and if I can get away without doing something, I will. Uh, but also, I just there were, there were a few instances where you know you speak to the broker and you speak to the lender, and they're on board with the project. But the surveyor is this completely different entity, and depending on what day of the week it is, what the weather is like, what side of the bed they got out of, they can be your best yeah. friend or your worst nightmare. Even if the lender yeah. tells you, you know, this is how we value our HMOs, the surveyor might you know just throw that out the window, throw their guidance out the window, and I know they shouldn't do but they seem to sometimes just think screw this i'm gonna do what i want to do and I've, I've just seen sort of little glimmers at the back of their eyes when you hand them this pack being like why the hell are you trying to tell me how to do my job and i guess we just sort of thought well you know what we'll just uh we'll leave it up to the gods to figure out and um you know not try to step on toes and potentially damage a relationship with uh so yeah i guess you know that that's kind of just my thinking on it and we've we've shied away from them recently but you know really interesting to hear your thoughts on it and uh yeah probably something that we'll go back and revisit now based on that yeah i think we we've never had negative feedback from it okay um one thing personally as well that, that most clients do now as well is take a, a coffee with them as well. So they'll take a coffee for the valuer. Uh, <laughs> now, I know that sounds it, it sounds really bizarre, um, but it works. It really does work. Uh, and it, it just – if you think as a valuer, you've maybe got out of bed at 7 o'clock to get over to this property for a 9 o'clock start. It's chucking it now with rain. You can't be bothered. You don't want to be there. But actually, you're greeted by someone who's taken the time to get you a coffee and gone, look, there's a coffee, uh, maybe a little hot cross bun or something, I don't know, uh, a nice little brownie or something. And <laughs> it, it just it, it doesn't affect the valuation. The valuation is going to be whatever the valuation is. Okay, yeah. But if you're friendly with the valuer, if you think in six months' time you need another valuation doing or you just want to pick up the phone for a little bit of free advice – you think if that value is friendly with you, a quick phone call, you might only take 30 seconds of the day up, but they're happy to give you that because you've taken the time to sort of engage with them mm-hmm. uh, in a friendly manner. Uh, and again, again, that might not work with every valuer. Uh, some just just won't be friendly no matter what you do. Uh but yeah, I think if you, anything you can do to it, it's relationships. That's all property is. It's it's purely sure. relationships. Yep. Uh, and anything you can do to improve or engage with those relationships, I think is worth it. I mean, three pound on the cost of coffee, and you might get some of the best conversation, and most valuable conversation during that valuation that you've ever had. Uh, yeah, you, I mean, you just can't pay for that sort of information. Yeah, no, it's it's great advice, and like I say, you know, we'll probably go back and revisit our stance on it um, going forwards. Anyway, Michael, you have been extremely impartial going through all of this, but obviously you're a business owner, and uh, you know <laughs> you, you are uh, you know you, you you seem to be doing a great job 
uh, you know, hear people given, as you said, you know, sort of people recommending themselves, meh, but we see a lot of good reports on, on social media typically about the work that you're doing. So if someone's listening to this thinking, you know what, I need a new broker, Michael sounds like the man for me. Um, a, are you open for new clients given uh, given how well things are going? And B, if so, where is the best place for people to find out more about your business, your offering, and how they can get in touch with you? Uh, yeah, I, I'm definitely open to new business. Uh, I think, yeah, you got to keep the lights on, haven't you? So, I mean, I'm, <laughs> yeah, all, always open for new business. Uh, like I said, we've, we've brought on a lot of support staff now. So, uh, yeah, there, there's, there's definitely some capacity. Uh, so, I've got to keep them busy as well. Uh, <laughs> As for getting in contact, I mean, people can either, I mean, they may well be listening to this on my own podcast right now, uh, but if people want to listen to my podcast, uh, there'll be details of that in the in the show notes, uh, or visit the website, which is literally just www.thepropertyfinanceguy.co.uk, uh, or connect with me on Facebook. Uh, that's that's where most of my business is done, uh, and most of the communication uh, is through Facebook. I'm literally on there as Michael Primrose. Uh, it's a nice little black and white photo of me at the minute. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, just connect with me uh, and, and, yeah, drop me a message. Awesome. And just on that subject, uh, we hadn't mentioned your podcast so far, but I guess um, it's it's more like this, right? It's related to finance, raising finance for property professionals, all the sort of warts and all details of what that entails. Uh, yeah, it's, it's quite high level. Uh, so what what I've done is I've kept the the episode's pretty short. Uh, and I mean, I'm literally talking sort of five minutes is probably one of the longest episodes on there other than other than interviews. Uh, and the reason for that is I think it's, it's quite easy to digest short episodes like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and especially when I'm talking about how lenders deal with interest. I mean, it's, it's quite a dry subject. <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's not the most entertaining. So to keep it in short bursts, uh, it, it just helps people keep people engaged uh so yeah that that's all it is it's just little episodes just little golden nuggets that people can listen to when they're in the car or uh, i mean they're, they're five minutes so whatever whenever you find yourself with a spare five minutes uh and it, it just helps maybe just fill in some gaps uh in knowledge where where people might just be missing little bits yeah perfect and obviously available in in all the usual um podcast outlets and the name of the podcast yeah. it's not the property finance guy is it? it's commercial property finance from memory uh, it is yes yeah. so it's commercial property finance products structure and strategy okay or if you just search for michael primrose in itunes i think you pop right up with that as well so yeah, uh, yeah and spotify as well good stuff okay perfect well thank you so much for that michael pleasure talking to you good information there i'm sure it'll be of interest to a whole host of our audience just with you know the little snippets that were in there about service accommodation bridging finance all that sort of stuff so really appreciate you taking the time to be here really enjoyed speaking to you and i hope we get the chance to do it again soon brilliant thank you very much for having me